This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. All right, take your Bibles and let's open up to where we left off this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to start out with a, a confession um, that um, as we have begun this series, the book of 1 Corinthians, at least in my opinion and um, experience, has proven to be a more difficult book to prepare a sermon for than other books. Like right now, if, if we were to go to Romans um, I could just pick something out of maybe Romans 3, 6, or what have you, and we could go to town. What becomes difficult is when we go to a passage of Scripture where Paul seems to integrate practical living with theology, and he blends them together in such a way that you almost have this web of words that when you start picking them apart, you have to make sure that, that you uh, keep the, the, the nature of the text, in other words, the context of the text intact, and, and that you are deciphering it and, and digesting it in such a way that we know how to, to live it out. And uh, this morning was kind of one of those passages where I kind of felt almost a, a little overwhelmed, and, and, and even tonight as well. But I tell you, um, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying this book in depth. Um, I really don't recall going through the book of 1 Corinthians in any formal Bible study or sermon series. So this is actually, to my knowledge, the very first time I am preaching uh, this book. But it has thus far, as far as I am concerned, proven to be extremely beneficial uh, to my life. And I hope so far uh, to yours as well. Well, this morning we looked at the issue of divisions in the church. And we pointed out that there are... Uh, three ways that if we grow or move in these three directions, we can limit or severely hinder in preventing church divisions. We talked about growing up, maturing in our faith, uh, getting a steady diet of the, of the Word of God. Uh, we talked about growing out, being outwardly focused rather than inwardly focused and picking certain people that we want to follow and getting into our cliques and things of that nature. And then we talked about growing right, that the fact that, you know, this church, we are founded upon a foundation of the gospel that cannot be changed. But what we build on top of that is either permanent or not permanent. And and I, I brought out to you how Paul uh, emphasized that what we build must be permanent. It must be long-lasting and not build upon things that are fleeting and, and entertaining and uh, uh, just in and of itself and, and what have you. Now, while those may be things that we can do to prevent divisions, there was an underlying ideology that affected the Corinthian church. In other words, if you were to, if you were to take all the, the people in the church in Corinth at the time and say, okay, yeah, they were not growing up. They had issues of spiritual maturity. Yep, they had issues of being inwardly focused. Yep, they had issues of, of building things that were not designed to last. There was a common denominator. Paul is going to address that common denominator in the closing verses of chapter 3. 
And because he addresses that common denominator, we're going to address that common denominator. The title of this message was just like this morning. It's Preventing Divisions in the Church. It's just part two. So if you have uh, your Bibles and you've opened it up to 1 Corinthians 3, let's stand together. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Father in heaven, I pray that as we move through these verses, that we will be able to have them dissected in such a way that the meaning and intent of the text is absolutely crystal clear and that we are not left with any excuse to be found obedient to what it is commanding us to do. Father, there is no passage of Scripture, whether it be poetry or prose, whether it be a direct command or a narrative of an event. Father, every part of the Word of God tells us and commands us how to live. May we just be found obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, may you bless the reading of your word and the sermon brought forth. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, Paul is going to get to the real source of of mischief, as it were. Uh, This rupture of unity that Corinth is and has been experiencing really spraying from this pride of knowledge. You got that almost instantly from the text. He opened up this paragraph by saying, don't deceive yourself lest you think that you're really smarter than what you actually are. If I could render the verse in my vernacular. It was a vain conceit of that wisdom, meaning not only were you deceived in the wisdom that you had, but you loved it. In the Corinthian church, Loved it. That conceit was based upon worldly wisdom. Now, it is, I believe, natural that the phrase or terminology of worldly wisdom corresponds equally with self-deception. I can see that, and I think you can too. Because in the Scriptures, there is a battle from start to finish between spiritual wisdom and earthly wisdom. It started in the garden, if you recall. God gave Eve a certain command and Adam a certain command. Do not eat fruit from this one and only tree. Everything else in the garden, it's yours. There's just only one tree. Now, how many of you ever been out in the woods? Anybody ever just singled out one tree and then you looked at everything else and you think to yourself, I've thought this, Adam, how could you have been so dumb? 
You had everything else. It was just the fruit from one tree. I am of the opinion that the fruit of all the other trees and plants were just as beautiful, maybe not more beautiful and, and enticing than the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why that one tree? Because the deceiver, Satan, crept in and he gave them a lie. You remember the lie. He said, did God not say that you shouldn't touch of it? And that was a lie because God didn't say you can't. He said, don't partake of it. And, And thus began this second mistake, dialoguing with the devil. It never works out. As if Eve was more cunning than the serpent, which she was not, nor Adam. Worldly wisdom will make you think that you are smarter than you actually are. And it has never worked out. And it can be responsible for a church split. Now, I got to thinking about all of my experiences in pastoral ministry. And I've jotted down one, two, three, four, just four common excuses that I have heard from church members over the years that are evident of worldly wisdom. For instance, don't judge me or single me out. Why are you judging me or singling me out? Why do we have to go to India, China, Africa, Russia, fill in the blank, when there are lost people here? I can believe what I want and still go to heaven just so long as I believe in Jesus, right? I just want to appear to have it all together, but I can live another way when people aren't looking. Those are some of the ways that worldly wisdom has kind of crept into the church and has deceived us all. Because if there's any place that we don't have it all together and, and, and it needs to be exposed, would have to be here. When we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it automatically includes a list of other doctrines that we must hold on to. Caring about the lost next door automatically includes a caring for the lost in the next country and vice versa. Nowhere in the text, or in the, in the scriptures, excuse me, nowhere in the scriptures are we forbidden or discouraged from coming and going to one another in Christian brotherly love for correction and rebuke and instruction. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. But see, worldly wisdom would teach all those things. It wants you to believe that you're okay. It, it, wants you, it wants to put you at the center of your own little universe. And when we, when we are at the center of our own little universe, we're going to have the issues that the church at Corinth was having. You're not going to want to grow. You're, you're not going to want to go out into the world. And you most certainly do not care about how the church operates. 
you won't have any of those concerns. So let's talk about self-deception tonight. That's the, the big driving topic of this small little paragraph. Let me give you three dangers, deadly dangers, about self-deception, and then we'll see them in the text. Number one, self-deception can happen to anyone and is difficult to acknowledge. No one here is immune to being self-deceived. has nothing to do with spiritual maturity, although I do believe that immaturity in, in your faith may breed it a little bit more. But mature believers, we can, and you can deceive yourself just as easily. Because we're all good at rationalizing things, aren't we? We're good at that. We are good at convincing ourselves that what we're doing is right and justified. We are super good at declaring that how we're approaching something or saying something or doing something, boy, we just, we want to make everything a battle and we want to win. Paul made it clear, let no one, no one deceive himself. Now the word Translated himself could equally be used in this context as herself. It means anyone within the church. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's the reason why deception is so easy. It is wrapped up. It is, it is cloaked in, 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 in the rationalizations and in the arguments of this world. Let him become a fool. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? We think to ourselves, well, well I've heard about foolish people. I've seen foolish people according to whose standards. There are ways that you can act foolish. There's, you know, children can act foolish. Grown-ups, when they are inebriated, can act foolish. And you can act foolish in certain contexts. That's not the foolish that's being referred to here. The fool that he's referring to is in direct contrast to the wisdom of this world. Because if I am being self-deceived... In the, by thinking that I am wise, wise according to who? Wise according to the wisdom of this world. Then let me become the fool according to the wisdom of this world. If I'm doing that, who am I turning to? I'm turning my thoughts. I'm turning my arguments. I'm turning everything of who I am over to Christ. Now I have become a fool according to the world. I can assure you that to the Lord and to the church and for you and I, that isn't foolish. That is true wisdom. For the wisdom of this world, verse 19, it's folly with God. You know what folly means? It's an easily defined term. It's not a big theological word. Jovial, joking, it's it, baseless has no value to it whatsoever. So the more that I want to align myself with the way that the world thinks, I've literally become empty-headed. It may get you places with the world. 
it gets you nowhere with the Lord. It may get you what you, and, and let me tell you a, a place that, um, I, I don't know if the verdict is still out, but it is definitely a place where I've, I've heard some theologians and other pastors talk about uh, where churches across the country, where we've got to really be careful, is adopting worldly business principles in a faith-based, Christ-centered organization. Uh, now, let's, for instance, uh, balancing a checkbook at home is important. Well, we want to do the same thing at church. That's not what we're talking about here. What I am talking about are, are business models that, that drive our leadership and the CEO uh, type stuff that, that, we, that I'm seeing happening in, in certain places. We've got to be very careful about how we utilize worldly wisdom because Jesus doesn't really, and Paul, according to this text, it sounds like there's not a whole lot of room in our ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, sounds like there's not a whole lot of room in our ecclesiology for this stuff to be present. Is it because it's immoral? Not necessarily. Fortune 500 company? Can take, for instance, or a Christian, maybe a, a secular but Christian-owned organization. Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A. Billions of dollars in revenue, but they're not the church. They're using worldly, business principles, things of that nature. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you and I as believers, the body of Christ, living as we ought, being an example as we ought, being, being a witness to the world. How do we best do that? We do that by showing them the wisdom of Jesus. If we try to convince them with the wisdom of the world, guess what we've won them to? The wisdom of the world. I heard a pastor once say, and it's been in my mind, and just kind of, kind of put it in my heart ever since, when he said, be careful what you win people with. What you win people with, you'll win them to. So if I win people based on entertainment type stuff, I've won them to that. That's why Paul was, earlier on, was so adamant about our foundation must be Jesus. If you win people to Jesus, you'll have little room for error later on because you'll find that you will have to do so much self-correcting later on. Not only is it it can happen to any one of us. It's difficult to acknowledge that, that you know, we're struggling with it or we're a part of it. But number two, self-deception insults the Lord and ignores faith. I think this is probably the, 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 the centerpiece of the argument for Paul here. Look at the uh, latter part of, of verse 19. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, uh, the, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and it's quoting the Old Testament, and in this case, there are two Old Testament references, I can promise you it's there on purpose. It's not there by accident. And we must consider why that text was quoted in this particular context. For this text, or in these verses, 
we have two Old Testament references. The first is the book of Job. So if you'll put your finger in 1 Corinthians, let's flip over to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament book of Job, chapter 5. Job chapter 5. Book of Job, you know the context. Here's a dude that was righteous. He loved the Lord. Uh, Satan went to the Lord to get permission to test him. You know he lost everything in the end. He's now sitting on this uh, trash heap Source from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. This man had no position that he could sit or lie in which he wasn't in agony. He had lost everything to his name. And now these three friends come. For a whole week, the Bible says they sat there seven days in silence. They didn't even know how to respond. One of the first friends speaks up. His name is Eliphaz. He speaks up, and this is his first speech beginning in chapter 4 and also into chapter 5. And he says in chapter 5, verse 13, he catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Now, would the Corinthians have knowledge of this quotation? Possibly. Uh, Matter of fact, yes. He wouldn't have quoted something that they wouldn't have no ability to understand or no previous knowledge of. At least that's my opinion. He says that really the wise, they don't really understand. If you if you live your life by earthly wisdom. You really don't know how the world truly works because you're looking at it horizontally. You're not looking at it vertically. That's the difference between earthly wisdom and biblical wisdom. If all I look, uh, if I just look at at my faith in this church horizontally, all I'm going to care about are checks and balances. All I'm going to care about are nickels and noses. All I'm going to care about is, is the way things are running. And if it's running okay, then it must be okay. What happens is when you are self deceived into earthly wisdom, You're going to begin operating by the ends justifying the means. In other words, as long as it works, then it must be okay. And that is wrong. That is not how the church should operate. That's not how you and I should operate. Because just because something works does not mean that it's right. Amen. He goes on, Psalm 94 Verse 11, so with your thumb still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's go over to the book of Psalms, chapter 94. Okay, in verse 11. Now, just look at verse 11 by itself. And when you look at verse 11 by itself, it says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So if we maintain that, that we ought to be in this you know, area of worldly wisdom, Lord knows that. He also knows that the way that we think worldly 
this world will come and go. Remember that this morning I talked about how the flesh is just is dead. Do you know that everything in this world is dying or decaying? There's a show that I, I watch sometimes. It's on, a, I don't know, I forget what network it's on, but the name of the show is uh, Life After People. Anybody ever heard of this show? Everybody has seen it? And, and it's a show that talks about, well, what would happen to this world after we're done, after humanity is gone? What happens? By the end of the episode, everything has decayed and fallen apart and rotten and died. Nothing gets better. I maintain that that still happens with our presence. We can maintain things a little bit, but that's why we're maintaining, because things naturally are dead, dying, and decaying. It's but a breath. Here, one moment, gone the next. Now, the writer of Psalms wrote a psalm. He didn't put verses. Matter of fact, we've only had verses in our Bibles for about 300 years or so. He didn't know anything about verses. But the thought in verse 11 is only half the thought. Look at the last clause of verse 10 in Psalm 94. Who or he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Where is our true source of knowledge? Not from this world, but from the Lord. Hence, what Paul is teaching us is self-deception says, God, what you're teaching me is not good enough. What you're teaching me and how you're instructing me and maturing me is not working. I'll come right over here. Thank you very much. I'm just fine. With, with the common sense of this world, so-called. That's why self-deception is such a cancer in the life of the church, because we are refusing the instruction of the Lord. Furthermore, this rational thought, this, you know, this earthly wisdom, have you ever noticed it's never really based on faith? It is never really based on stuff that we can't see. In other words, it lives by the scientific method. It has to be, you know, it has to be uh, repeatable, and you got to be able to duplicate it. And it's, you know, you got to be able to do all the. That's worldly wisdom. There is no faith. Biblical wisdom. If I'm going to be a fool in the eyes of the world. Without faith, writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's a Pauline expression. And can I tell you, that is one of the top challenges of you and I sitting right here tonight. We don't know how to walk by faith. We're scared of it. But we should. We should take some risks. We should do some things that sound crazy to the world and say, God, 
the step that we're about to take, it makes sense according to the Scriptures, but I don't see where my foot's going to land, so we're just going to trust in you. When you are self-deceived, you can't see that. When you're self-deceived, you, you, that type of thought is so hard to process. There, there's, there's always been one group in the church that I have always thought is the most challenging group to serve on, the budget committee of a church. Do you know why? Because you've got all spectrums of people, and you've got those, I've served with them, pastor, we're not going to spend any more than what we brought in last year. We got, and it's, you know, the bottom line type person. Then you've got the one who said, Pastor, let's hire eight new staff members this year. Oh, dude, no, not really. That'd be great, but no. It's, it's one of the hardest places to serve because there is a balance that you have to find. You have to be, first of all, you must. You must be in tune with the Lord. <laughs> there, there's just no two ways about it. And you've got to know where common sense ends and faith begins. But the same is true for every ministry here. From Sunday school, deacon ministry, the pulpit ministry, missions especially, men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, our students, choir, orchestra, we can be easily self-deceived and not think that the Lord can't provide. Now, a few weeks ago, I sat here, stood here, told you that over the past three years, two things have actually declined. Offerings and attendance. But one thing that we have never experienced so far, and likely we never will, is a need that has gone unmet. Did you know that the Lord has provided everything that we have desired to do for Him? He's provided. He's provided the people. He's provided the times and the circumstances. He's provided the finances. You and I can get caught up in the worldly wisdom of thinking, well, pastor, as long as we have attendance growing and offering growing, then everything must be good, right? No, not necessarily. What if you have a quickly growing church, but there's no discipleship? A church full of babies? I've never known a nursery that self-governs itself. <laughs> Lastly, self-deception only sees immediate or personal benefit and not the benefit of the kingdom. Self-deception only sees immediate or personal benefit and not the benefit of the kingdom. In the last three verses, beginning in verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. I, I love that statement. You know what that means? 
everyone here has been equipped by the Lord. Every single one of us here are exactly the same in God's eyes. You can do as much as I can, and I can do as much as you can. Literally, we are the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And in and, and 1 Corinthians 12, we, we're going to get into this hard and heavy because Paul talks about how we have been created and we have been put in here in, in, in this congregation for a specific reason to do a specific job you've been designed and created to do. Maybe a great failure. I think a great failure, shortcoming, uh, maybe something we just have not paid as much attention to, is the development of the body. And one of the things, I have it on my marker board in my office. I have a, a marker board on, on, in my inner office in my study where I kind of map out visually ideas and thoughts. And the, the big idea and the thought right now is creating a, a, a steady, uh, if you were to kind of make a starting point of the first time a visitor comes onto our campus, how do we get that person to being an active, serving member of this church. Let me tell you something. That stuff doesn't happen just by accident. When a church plans how it wants to take and reach out into the community, bring in the lost, give them the gospel, but God's going to give that growth, you remember? He's in charge of the decision-making, not you or I. We just, we're witnesses to the, and, 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 and testimony uh, to, to the gospel, and we, let, we, we just put God in the driver's seat on the decisions. But what do we do when that person receives Christ? How do we journey with them as a church in discipling them into maturity and finding them a place of service? Can I, can I just suggest to you that that's a tremendous crisis in the Western church right now, there's not too many cases that, is, that are doing it exactly perfect and, and really well. That's, that's why the market right now in Christian literature for pastors is flooded with this, type, with this type of information. In other words, churches, how do we do that? How do we make sure we can take a person who walks into our campus for the very first time, walks into a worship service, and we walk with them, we get them back for another service and to a point where they make a decision, we baptize them, educate them, disciple them, and put them in a place of service. My point here is in verse 21, every single one of us has a part to play. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He's telling us, we're actually bigger than this wisdom. If you want to reduce our value to what the world offers, you go right ahead. I won't do that. And he just names off the three big players in the life of this church. Paul, Cephas, who were foundational to the gospel proclamation. Apollos to the development of this church and discipling, and teaching, and preaching. We're all on the same team. We're so all on the same team that you can be self-deceived to think that you're the only player on the team. I heard an athlete once say, yeah, there is no I in team, but there is a me.
And I think one of the areas that we got to be careful of in being self-deceived is to think that, well, this church can't function without me. Or to think that, well, you know, my presence won't make a difference at all. I don't know if I have anything to give. We got to remember that At the end of the day, this world is perishing. It's dying, it's decaying. And what God has offered to us is something that is eternal, not just life, but how to live eternal life. And I believe all of that is so much bigger and better than anything the world has offered to me. problem is, how do we see it? How, how, can we, how can we know? Well, I mentioned before, maturity has a big part of this. You've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to be, you've got to be mindful that, that immaturity, uh, man, that's, that's it's detrimental to your faith. Always looking inward and, and only being concerned for yourself. And your little group or your little clique, detrimental. It'll bring division every time it's tried. Trying to build on something that is eternal, the church, the bride of Christ, with things that are immaterial and not eternal, that's going to fall apart. And we get self-deceived in thinking that, well, the way that the world carries itself, maybe if we just kind of pick this up and put it over here, then, then it will work, right? It's working over here, right? It seems to be. No, it's not. We have a whole different set of rules. So here's our fix. Here's our solution. You ready? This is big, deep theology. We have to trust the Lord. <laughs> we just have to trust Him. We have to trust him if for no other reason but for this reason here alone. He sees things that we don't see. He understands things that we don't. The kids, we teach them to sing. He's got the whole world in his hand all at one time. We have to trust him. That's where it begins. A number of years ago, I think it was back in 03, if, if my history um, serves me well, a news flash, news bulletin came over um, in the morning news that the evening before, an airplane carrying John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife and one other pastor, I believe, crashed uh, up near Kennebunkport, Maine. Anybody remember that? Crashed it, the airline crash, and crashed out in the, in the water there. John F. Kennedy Jr. was a certified uh, airline uh, uh, pilot, but he was certified for VFR. It means visual flight rules. Visual flight rules mean that you have to have a certain distance visibility and a certain ceiling for which you can fly because you're flying based on what you can see. 
Now, that night, according to FAA, this area uh, and, and the, the flight pattern where John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying was certified for VFR even at nighttime. However, it was, it was also stated that some pilots who were VFR uh, canceled their flight plans because there was some haze and some fog and some pocketed areas, and it was kind of iffy, if you know what I mean. John F. Kennedy Jr., and, and, and I'm sure a very accomplished pilot, could only fly based upon what he could see. Now, when you are VFR certified, there is one humongous yellow flag that you got to look out for. It's called spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is the, 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 uh, uh, the event that happens when you get disoriented and your body is incapable of correcting itself. And it happens frequently in airplanes where you feel like you are one direction your body feels like it's one direction, but the plane is actually in another direction, a spatial disorientation. It, 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 the chances for it increases even at night. What's the solution? IFR certification, instrumentation flight rules, because your eyes can deceive you. And so because my eyes can deceive me on the horizon and I may be flying upside down or sideways or at an angle, but my body feels like I'm right, you're headed for disaster. But when I'm IFR, instrument flight rules, what am I doing? I am trusting my instrumentation. Because I have the gauges and the instrumentation before me that shows me where I am relative to the horizon. I have an altimeter that tells me how high I'm flying. I've got another indicator that tells me my speed. In other words, I, I need to trust my instrumentation to guide me where I need to go. Any of you ever flown in a plane at night and you're like in a, in a passenger airliner and you're up high and, and you're at nighttime, but you can see that there's clouds between the airplane and the ground? I've been there. It's a little disconcerting, is it not? I've often, how do the pilots know? Well, they don't have, you know, Batman vision or whatever you want to call it. They trust their instruments. They have a book, which is their flight plan, and they know that for this certain flight path, their instruments need to be at certain places, and eventually they'll land that plane safely. Why? The instruments see far above and beyond what our human eyes can see. That's the solution. To get rid of, to jettison earthly wisdom, we have to remember. And, and when I mean remember, I'm talking about tomorrow morning. You need to remind yourself of this. And the next day and the next day and the day after. The Lord sees far above and beyond what I can see. My human eyes can only see so much, and what they do see, they can disorient me. And because they can disorient me, I will make wrong decisions based upon wrong data. I can make a decision based upon falsehood rather than truth. 
Lord, I will trust you. How do we trust the Lord? To know him. How do we know him? We know the Lord by his word. I just don't know of any other way, all right? We know the Lord by his word. I promise you, those wonderful words, that hymn says they're wonderful words of life, not death, because that's exactly what they'll give you. They'll give you life. They will teach you the wonderful promises on which we can stand. And so here's my challenge to you, and it's just one. And it's about self-deception. Now, again, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't verbally come up with a statement to say, okay, are you self-deceived? Or, or, you know, check yourself. It is hard. But there is a litmus test that I have found over the years of ministry. I have found a litmus test that I believe may correspond to self-deception. And it has to do with being offended. Again, I'm only operating based upon about 20 years or so of being in ministry. And I've just made a mental note and just kind of, okay, kind of keeping track of what's happening here. It seems to me that those who are more easily offended and who have a lesser view of biblical truth and honoring biblical truth are the ones more likely to be self-deceived. Because there are, their offenses are going against the worldly wisdom that they're holding on to. That's why they're getting offended. Likewise, because they're holding on to worldly wisdom, they have a lower view of biblical truth. Do you see the relationship? So I'm just going to ask you this question. Kind of judging where you are on, on that spectrum, do you think it's possible that you're self-deceived this evening? in an area of your life. It can be as important as the gospel of Jesus, the gospel message, thinking that you're saved, but you're not living the life of a believer. Maybe it's regarding biblical truth, thinking that, well, you know, uh, what I truly believe isn't all that important, is it? Those are questions I can't answer for you. Only you can. I'm going to ask you to just be honest with yourself tonight. Make an assessment of where you are and to respond accordingly. So, Father, I pray that as we enter into this invitation, we would all be able to do just that. Make an honest appraisal of our lives to kind of see where we are but God, for none of us to be hesitant in responding. Father, there is no place for shame in this building. God, no one is ever looked down upon for getting things right with the Lord. So, Father, I plead with everyone in the sound of my voice that we use this time of response wisely to confess and repent. To bring a burden or a struggle. 
to bring a matter that's just on our hearts before you. Father, we give this time for you. We ask your blessings upon this time of response that your will would be done. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Thank you.